This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. This is Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce, and today we are at the American Bar Association mid-year meeting in Boston, Massachusetts. And our topic today is one that I've wanted to do on this show for a long time. We are going to talk about the F word. And the F word in workers' comp is fraud. And the reason I've wanted to do this show is that there is in my view, as an attorney who has been representing injured workers for over 25 years and who has a background also representing insurance companies and employers, that there is a perception of fraud that is very different than the realities that exists out there. And to discuss this with us today, I am very happy to have a guest from Alabama. I have attorney Michael Fish, here with us today, uh, Michael is a principal and founding member of the law firm of Fish Nelson, LLC, in Birmingham, Alabama. Michael uh, graduated from the University of Georgia and got his JD from Cumberland School of Law at Samford University. He is currently a member of the American Bar Association Workers' Compensation and Employers' Liability Committee, and he will be the chair of this committee in 2010. He is a member of the Alabama Bar Association and on numerous other bar associations in the state of Alabama. He is a frequent speaker at seminars and he has written materials on topics relating to matters involving insurance defense with an emphasis on trial practice. Michael, welcome to Boston. Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, you know, I called it the F word and to some uh, people that... uh, are invested in workers' compensation, the employers who pay the premiums and the insurance companies that uh, pay the benefits, albeit sometimes reluctantly. Fraud is a very uh, important issue. And I think no matter who we are and who we represent, none of us want to tolerate fraudulent behavior, either on the part of our client, whether our client is an injured worker or our client is an employer or insurance carrier. Would you agree with me that uh, to the ordinary person, the ordinary man or woman on the street, if you mention fraud and you mention workers' compensation, what's the first image that might come to their mind? Probably the claimant that's caught on videotape carrying a refrigerator. <laughs> uh, and that's probably because that's, that's what's sexy. Uh, that's what the news covers. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stats out there. Uh, one of the stats that I thought was interesting uh, in 2008... Uh, reported cases by the news media, uh, reported cases of employer fraud was actually 44 cases, uh, reported cases of provider fraud, which would be insurance companies or agents, uh, that was two cases, uh, and, but reported by the news media in 2008 of employee fraud was actually 115 cases. Okay. Well, that would seem to speak to the argument that the employee fraud is a much bigger problem and bigger issue than employer fraud. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, th- that's not to say that it's a bigger problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's a problem from both sides. I mean, like you said, fraud is fraud. Uh, there's saints and sinners on both sides. There's bad employees out there that are trying to, uh, you know, take advantage of the system. There's probably some bad employers out there, too. And uh, the thing about it is, 
the honest employers, the good employers, don't like the dishonest employers any more than they like the dis- dishonest employees because it, it raises their premium. You're representing primarily insurance carriers and self-insured employers. What Before we get into what constitutes employer fraud, to be fair to all sides, what type of employee fraud have you seen and how has it combated? Well, typically what we see uh, when, when, when I'm representing uh, an employer, uh, the usual case is uh, magnification of symptoms, uh, malingering, uh, taking a, a legitimate accident and then trying to get a lot more out of it than it's worth. Uh, to me, that's, that, that's fraud, but that's really hard to prove. Uh, the, the ones that are easier to prove, obviously, is if uh, uh, you, you have video of somebody uh, where the accident didn't even take place. Uh, for instance, uh, n- not far from here, uh, I think a month ago, I saw in your newspaper here outside of Boston, was it Worcester? Worcester. 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 Okay. Well, Worcester at a Shell gas station, uh, an employee decided he was going to manufacture a robbery with one of his buddies and uh, had his buddy actually punch him in the face during this fake robbery, incurred very serious facial damage, what he failed to realize was that the whole thing was on videotape. So, uh, you know, obviously that's a situation where it would be easy to prove. Um, another situation, uh, actually, uh, one, of, one of my clients, uh, the Alabama Forestry Fund, uh, successfully prosecuted a fraud case through the Attorney General's office in Alabama. Uh, there was somebody had permanent total benefits where they were receiving benefits for life. Uh, and in this case, we're actually receiving benefits after their life. <laughs> the, the, uh, the gentleman had passed away. Uh, the benefits were still going to his house. For five years, the benefits went uh, to his widow. And uh, they were eventually caught because uh, they couldn't get this guy on the phone for obvious reasons. And, uh, and they were able to recover a substantial amount of money. Well, uh, well, I don't know if they'll recover it, but they were able to get a judgment for a substantial amount of money, and uh, this person was sentenced to 36 months. Well, you, you began your remarks talking about statistics, and as I've reviewed statistics, it depends on who's giving you the statistics, because you can find uh, estimates of what fraud, uh, with a capital F, costs industry uh, all over the place. And I was looking at a transcript of a Dateline NBC show that was done a few years ago uh, that had, to me, a very decided uh, bias against employees. They started with the typical sexy anecdote. And somewhere in the middle of the segment, uh, the reporter indicated that workers' comp fraud is quite common, that the industry estimates it adds up to $5 billion a year. It wasn't long after that that the AFL-CIO wrote to NBC and indicating that those allegations have no basis in fact. And they quoted some statistics that in California, uh, workers' comp fraud was reported to be 20% of total of all claims when the truth was that, um, according to the state's Department of Insurance, it was three-tenths of 1%. And that in the year 2000, there was a uh, a study done by, by industry. It was called Cost of Occupational Injuries and Illnesses. And according to their statistics, only 2% of all workers' compensation dollars in the sample year that they had uh, would be considered fraudulent. And that's a far cry from $5 billion or 20%. But that is part of the myth of fraud. And by making these remarks, I'm not condoning $1 of whether it's $5 billion or $500. I mean, it takes away from 
legitimate people and, and nobody condones it. But let's shift gears a minute. Let's talk about employer fraud. In my experience, the incidence of employer fraud and the dollars of employer fraud far exceed the dollars and incidence of employee fraud. So give us some examples. What would constitute employer fraud? Well, I think, you know, without question, if you're talking about dollar figures, then yes, employer fraud is going to definitely outweigh employee fraud because when you have an employee committing fraud, then yeah, they're they're taking advantage of the system and they're, they're, they're maybe getting benefits for an individual employee when maybe they shouldn't be or they're getting more benefits than they should be. Uh, but when you're dealing with employer fraud or provider fraud or uh, you're, you're usually dealing with across-the-board uh, premiums, uh, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes into the millions of dollars. Um, for instance, uh, there was a Texas case recently, uh, Texas Mutual uh, pursued it, uh, which is one of the main workers' comp insurers in Texas. There was a company there. I'm trying to think of the name. It was a, it was a crane company, but uh, United Crane Incorporated. Uh, one of the executives there had been misrepresenting the payroll. And let me say, when it comes to employer fraud, there's certain types of ways that fraud is committed. One of them is to misrepresent the payroll. Uh, Calling somebody a clerical worker when they're actually a uh, roofer. Well, that's misclassification. And that's when, yeah, exactly, because that's another, another way to affect premiums. The premiums that an employer is going to have to pay is how you classify them. And like you said, there's high-risk jobs. With high-risk jobs, you're going to pay higher premiums. And so what employers will do is, uh, is classify them as a clerical, which is a very low risk, when in fact they're, they're doing something that's much more dangerous. That's one way to do it. Another way is to misrepresent the payroll, say they're being paid less or, or paying people under the table. Uh, that's another way to do it. Um, in, in this case, he was misrepresenting the payroll to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. And uh, was, it was finally discovered, and Texas Mutual took him to court and uh, was awarded $8.2 million. Uh, of that, uh, $2.5 million was punitive, which was pretty much unheard of for these types of cases. Um, so that's, you know, that just shows you the magnitude, dollar figure-wise, what one employer can do uh, when they are taking advantage of the system by misclassifying their employees. I think you can add to the misclassification and the underreporting of payroll another very common, at least from my experience, very common phenomenon, and that is classifying people who are legitimately employees as independent contractors. Massachusetts just enacted a statute divining independent contractor. Up until then, we were relying on the common law interpretation and looking at all the indicia of control and method and manner of payment, et cetera. But have you also seen uh, incidents of avoiding workers' compensation by just telling uh, the carrier that this person is not an employee, he's an independent contractor? Well, I, th I think you've hit on probably, uh, from a national standpoint, probably one of the hottest topics there is right now uh, concerning the issue of fraud. Uh, and I don't know if underground economy is, is used nationally. I know it's used here in Massachusetts. That's where I, I saw it for the first time. It might, it might be used elsewhere, but I, I noticed that uh, here in Massachusetts, you have the Joint Task Force on the Underground Economy and Employee Misclassification. And of course, when we're talking about uh, underground economy, we're talking about just that. Uh, paying people under the table, uh, misclassifying them as something other than a high-risk employee. Uh, and so basically, these, these uh, high-risk jobs, it's, it's as if they don't exist, and so they're not paying premiums on them. And uh, 
in Massachusetts alone, according to a Harvard study, so I have to assume that it must be legitimate, um, last year alone, uh, in, in this state, Massachusetts, $100 million, there was $100 million in unpaid income tax and another $100 million in unpaid workers' comp premiums because these uh, high-risk employees are, are being disguised as low-risk employees or they're being paid under the table. And that's just in Massachusetts. Uh, one in seven construction workers, according to the same study, are either paid under the table or, or, or disguised as, as a low-risk employee. So, yeah, that's, it's substantial. In California, I know that uh, they estimate 75% of the high-risk employees in California, 75% are uh, either not classified as high-risk or they're paid under the table. And because of that, according to studies in California, and the honest employers are paying eight times the premiums they would otherwise be paying. Do we ever see that reported in the mainstream media? Well, I mean, I found it. I mean, no, I didn't find it on the front page of the Birmingham News. You don't find uh, it on the investigative teams because, as you said at the outset, it ain't sexy. But we might. uh, We might in the future. Uh, And the reason I say that is because, uh, obviously, uh, Barack Obama is our president now. But before he was our president, he was a senator. And as a senator, uh, back in 2007, he co-sponsored a bill. It was called the Independent Contractor Proper Classification Act of 2007. Now, it wasn't passed, but since that time, uh, in fact, uh, last year, two different bills uh, uh, we've got in the House, there was the Employee Misclassification Prevention Act. Uh, In the Senate, uh, a bill by the same name, uh, or the Employee Misclassification Prevention Act. So uh, here they are again. And of course, uh, President Obama uh, certainly is going to be probably helpful in getting these pushed along. And, uh, and basically, what, if, if these are uh, passed, if, or if it, it, it is passed, um, what that's going to do is it's going to require a lot of record keeping. It's going to require employers to put their employees on notice if they are, in fact, classifying them as independent contractors so that they're not going to find out after, after the fact, they get hurt. which is what, what the common way for them to find out. Uh, they'll, they'll get hurt and then, and then find out they're an independent contractor. So they'll find that out, and then they'll, there'll be a, a means to contest that status will be provided to employees. Uh, and then, of course, there'll be penalties for misclassification if it's a proven misclassification. And, uh, and when that's passed, I think, you know, we will see it in the headlines, and, and we may see examples of when that's prosecuted. I hope we do. There's one other area we haven't touched on, or if we did, it was very briefly, and that is failure to have workers' compensation, period. How is it in Alabama? Well, in Alabama, it's illegal. It's uh, illegal everywhere, I yeah, suppose, but it's, uh, it's how diff- widespread is it? I mean, it's different. Uh, I mean, all I can really speak to is Alabama, and I know if you have over six employees, you've got to have it. Uh, some states, you've got to have it no matter how many employees you have. Uh, I, I haven't done a survey, so I'm not sure. But uh, does it happen? It absolutely does happen. And uh, I know on the books, as far as our workers' comp statute, if it's proven that you do not have workers' comp insurance at trial, then you're assessed with a double penalty. 
And I can say from personal experience, I have had a client or two where I, I discovered uh, I was hired independently and they did not have insurance. I settled those cases pretty quick before that was discovered. Our experience in Massachusetts is pretty much the same. Since at least 1992, uh, our administration, whatever administration has been in office and our Industrial Accident Board has, has focused more on cracking down on uninsured employers than in any of the other years of my experience. And the I can only gauge it by the number of clients who come into my office with a, a claim and there's no comp coverage. And there are far less today than there were five or 10 years ago. We have established a trust fund. So all the legitimate employers pay a surcharge to their premium that funds a fund that'll pay these claims and the state or the industrial board will then go after the uninsured employer as well as the injured worker has common law tort rights. I was just looking at statistics are a little dated there from about 10 years ago, but in Florida, uh, a study found that 13% of the employers in the state of Florida were operating without a workers' comp insurance. The next year, uh, it, it grew by another half percent. And the commentators thought that that was even an underestimate, that the audit, audit report uh, underestimated. So it is a problem. It does add to the costs. It burdens the legitimate employers that are paying uh, their premiums. And it also... Uh, hurts the employers that are bidding for jobs and cannot compete with uh, firms that underbid them for contracts because they are not paying workers' comp insurance. We're going to take a uh, short break, and then we're going to get back to Mike Fish and uh, conclude our discussion on fraud in the workers' compensation setting. We hope you listen to one of our brand new shows here on the Legal Talk Network, In-House Legal, with attorney Paul Boyton, experienced in all things in-house. If you're interested in the top issues, news, and trends inside the corporate legal department, you'll want to listen to In-House Legal. Starts January 12th. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen now, download the show, or even better, subscribe to the RSS feed. It's free. We're proud to tell you about a special legal podcast series called Legal Tips from the ABA Tort Trial and Insurance Practice section. It's all about creative approaches to old problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. You'll hear about the TIPS Leadership Academy, diversity initiatives, and plans for the TIPS 2009 annual meeting. Legal Tips starts in February, right here on the Legal Talk Network and the American Bar Association websites. Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news, talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, where we're discussing fraud in the workers' compensation setting. And with me is attorney Michael Fish from Fish Nelson, LLC in Birmingham, Alabama. Michael, we were talking about both injured worker, employee fraud, provider fraud, employer fraud, and all the different uh, examples of same. Uh, I understand there's a case brewing that uh, has to do with the prosecution of fraud and the use of the RICO statute. Can you give us some uh, input on what that's all about and what we might expect? Uh, definitely. Um, you know, just to take a step back, um, and, I, and I will get into RICO, but let me say, as far as prosecuting fraud, uh, states handle it different ways. 
And uh, depending on the state, you know, some states have anti-fraud statutes on the books. Uh, some just handle it by way of common lawsuit for fraud. Uh, some, sometimes it's, it's done criminally. Sometimes it's done in civil courts. One thing that we have not seen until just recently is to ha- handle it in federal court with a federal statute. And, uh, and what's being used now uh, and hasn't been successful yet, it's actually pending right now, is uh, using the RICO statute, which, you know, anyone that's heard of RICO knows uh, it was passed in 1970. It's the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. And it, it's basically passed so we could go after the mafia and, uh, you know, go after, you know, organized crime. And that's mainly what it's been used for. Let me take a next step before I get to the case I want to talk to you about and say that in the mid-90s, right here in Massachusetts, RICO was used to pursue a chiropractor who had a pretty big business. You may remember this, Alan. He did a lot of, his, his practice, he had a lot of locations and they did unnecessary testing. It was proven that he had a 20, his clinic had a 25 visit minimums, so you could get it over the $2,000 threshold so you could, so you could prove pain and suffering. And, uh, and of course he became a darling of the plaintiff's bar because they would always send their, some of the plaintiff's, <laughs> some, bar. Some of the plaintiff's bar. Exactly. Um, sorry, speaking like a defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, he was prosecuted successfully under the RICO statute because, uh, you know, once they got these transactions through mail and through wire, uh, that triggered RICO. So that brings us to present day. And what we have is a case in Michigan. There were six truckers. They worked for Casson's Transport Company. The case is Brown, which is the last name of one of the truckers, versus Casson's Transport Company. And uh, they have sued their employer, the trucking co- or the transport company, also the third-party adjusting company or third-party administrator that handles the adjusting for the self-insured employer, and also a litany of doctors, uh, as they called them in their complaint, quote, whore doctors, end quote. Uh, and, and what their allegation is that all these defendants together conspired to defraud them of their rightful uh, or their right to these workers' comp benefits because they're saying the employers and the, and the TPA were sending them to these doctors knowing that these doctors were going to give opinions that was favorable to the employer. And so uh, they sued. You, mean at, you can't do that? <laughs> well, well, that's the funny. That, well, it's not funny. That's the thing. That's the dangerous thing about this lawsuit is it cuts both ways because lawyers have their favorite doctors, uh, you know, and they're not, not, not necessarily favorite because they're uh, going to give you the opinions that you like. I, I, my, my personal favorite doctors are the ones that are credible because they're the only ones, they're the only ones I can use in court. So, but, uh, but they, they sued the transport company for under RICO and also for outrageous conduct. So you're saying RICO is more than a criminal sanction. It has civil sanctions and civil penalties as well. Absolutely. The government can pursue it. Uh, but also if, if, uh, if an individual or a, or a private company uh, can prove a, a series of criminal events, you know, and, and you know, wire or, for, or mail was used, they can do it too. And so what, what has been the judicial history of this? Well, it was actually uh, at the district court, uh, in this case located in Detroit, Michigan, uh, summary judgment was granted. Uh, in favor of the defendants. In favor of the defendants on the outrage claim and, and also on the RICO claim. And so it went up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
And uh, they actually upheld the summary judgment on the outrage claim because uh, the, the burden of proof was clear and convincing evidence. And they determined there was not clear and convincing evidence of outrageous conduct. But uh, the burden of proof was lesser for the RICO claim. And the, so they kicked it back. And they're not saying that the RICO claim is going to win. They're just saying that the RICO claim gets to go forward. It's not going to be granted at summary judgment. And so that's where we are in, right now in that case. It's just kind of, we're all waiting to see what happens. What is the measure of damages in a case like that? It's triple the actual damages. So in other words, what the claimant's might have been deprived of in terms of their workers' comp benefits, their medical benefits, their scheduled loss of function benefits, folk rehab, whatever it could be. Times three, plus attorney's plus fees. Plus attorney's fees, probably plus, plus interest. Plus costs, plus, exactly. Well, that that is something that uh, is a tool. And if it goes to prevent the occurrence of fraud, then it, I, I would agree it's a good thing. I want to close uh, by, first of all, thanking you for being here and giving us uh, the benefit of your experience and your wisdom in this. And I want to quote from a study that was done not too long ago. And I think that summarizes uh, my feelings on, on this whole issue. And the quote is as follows. The presumption of widespread malingering and dishonesty undercuts any meaningful discussion of the adequacy of benefits and provides a convenient response for those opposed to benefit increases that are so critically needed in many states. Until the misplaced focus on claimant fraud is overcome, district attorneys will continue to fry the small fish while the big fish go free, and the voting public will remain distracted by anecdotes. The emphasis on fraud and costs also distracts the public and lawmakers from the workplace hazards and flagrant safety violations that are the real cause of the problem of worker injuries and workers' compensation costs. So I think both you and I, representing competing interests, probably agree with that statement. Let, let me close with the late Judge Fulford, a bankruptcy judge that I had the pleasure of doing a, an internship with before he passed away. Let me close with his comment on uh, plaintiff versus defendant. And just say, he said, Mike, they're saints and sinners on both sides. You got it. Welcome to Massachusetts. Welcome to Boston. And welcome to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce signing off. Thanking you for listening. Hope you join us again on one of our shows and go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network. Hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.